What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album in the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? We're pumping tires and lighting fires this week because this episode has a machine head and it's bigger than the rest. Nick from the band Job for a Cowboy, as well as Cephala Carnage, Havoc, and a close associate of Nuclear Power Trio, joins me to talk all about Machine Head's 1994 Roadrunner debut, Burn My Eyes. But first, huge thanks to everyone who checked out last week's celebration of Madball with Set It Off, and it continues this week as I'm joined by New York hardcore staple Todd Friend of H2O. Not only is Todd a road dog drummer for Hydrogen 2 Oxygen, but a former employee of Roadrunner Records in the early 90s. We talked about the impact of that job on his life, and Madball set it off on the world in this week's Coyote Corner. Token I saw there August 31st or September 1st of 1990, a little bit before uh, Typo, like, like, like we started, the first CDs we were shipping out was uh, Heads Up Token Entry, King Diamond, the Eye, uh, Annihilator, and um, I, I just remember like somebody coming in with um, the first typo negative tape. It was a cassette tape, and uh, I think it was uh, Mark Abramson. Back then, well, we, he was psycho DJ psycho from Buffalo, upstate New York, and. Uh, he comes in and he's like, the guy from Carnival's new band, Typo, you know, it was like, and it was a Typo first record and, and, um, we were playing, it was, this is 1990, we were like, oh shit, this is fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it was like, you know, the, the hit, the main song was, I know you're fucking someone else, you know, we were just like, you know, 1990, we were like, holy shit, this is crazy, you know, like, <laughs> but it blew up and, and that's where, you know, that's kind of where you want to start. But we started a little bit before that. We were, we, were, we, like H2O kind of, we, before H2O, I was in a band with Toby's brother called Al Crowd. Uh, we started in Maryland. We were part of the Washington, D.C. hardcore punk scene. And then I got out of high school, 89. But we were doing shows with Token Entry. And Token Entry kind of merges me with a lot of stuff with Roadrunner, with, you know, Carcore, with a lot of stuff. So so it kind of all kind of starts from Outcrowd playing shows with Token Entry. It's just sick of it all, and Gorilla Biscuits, and um, Raw Deal, which would be kill, become Killing Time. And so 
Toby had moved up to New York City about a year before 1988 to live with the Token Entry guys who were also on Hawker Records, which was part of Roadrunner before. It was kind of in between Road Racer and Roadrunner. And Hawker Records had like, you know, a couple of hardcore, some hardcore bands, but the one that we always, we'd always do shows with was Token Entry. And so when our crowd relocated in New York City in 1990 uh, from Southern Maryland, the Washington, D.C. scene, we moved up on a Friday. We called Vinny Alou, who was Token Entry's tour manager, on a Saturday. He's like, um, oh, that's awesome. You guys are up here now for good. Like, and Because we were doing shows up and down the East Coast with Token Entry and Rilla Biscuits and Raw Deal. But Token Entry was... We did a lot of shows of Token Entry in the most. And so on a Saturday, he's like, um, we need two people in the mail room. And me and Toby didn't have jobs. We were just moved up with like a couple hundred bucks in our pocket. You know what I mean? And so we're like, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> we're looking for work anyway, <laughs> you know. Like, and, and, and we started work on a Monday, and that was how everything kind of merges together with a lot of stuff, pretty much everything for, for myself, for the New York scene. And Toby had already been a part of it cause he lived up here about a year and then he moved back for like six months. And then we all moved up together. Myself, Toby's brother, Todd Morris, Gene Booth. And we all relocated, relocated on the same weekend. That's where kind of like our story sorts, like we were shipping thousands of CDs out that first week, you know, and, and tapes and records. And back then, they had, you know, those were the three main things. There was no streaming back then. But but so that kind of leads to where token entry about, I want to say that was about six months to a year after we had moved up and started working at Roadrunner. But um, somewhere in that area, you know, and the first type of negative record comes out. <laughs> so you moved to New York, you 24 hours later, I work in the mailroom in Roadrunner, but you yeah, worked man. there for, for years though, right? So like you, did you work in the mailroom the whole I, time? I was there from uh, 1990 September to about September 94. Um, I started in the mailroom and then, I mean, we had everything come through there. Back then it was like, you know, I made I had to make a list earlier just to remember a lot of it, but I mean, uh, I mean, if you want I'm down the list, it, like Sepultura Rise, first early Sepultura stuff came later. Um, Obituary, Fear Factory, Annihilator, Exhorter, The Great Cat, uh, Deicide, Gorguts, Pestilence. You know, this was the early stuff when we were we were first starting there, uh, and so. I mean, it was like every every week there was some something new coming out. Like it was, it was a crazy time. I, I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple, but uh, I mean, it was like a lot of death metal, a lot of thrash metal, and then uh, I mean, there was like a mix of everything. And then there was like a subsidiary label that would later come in called Emergo Records, and they had a band called uh, Venus Beads and Center of Flux. Then they had a couple grunge acts. Grunge Truck was one of them from Seattle. This is probably late 91, early 92-ish. Um, they had the Neighborhoods that came out in 1990 when we first moved up. 
the neighborhoods were like a band out of Boston that uh, they they were a great band, a little bit like a replacements type of vibe. Um, and the guitar player from Aerosmith produced one of the records when I was on when I worked at Roadrunner Records. So I did the mailroom stuff for for like two solid two and a half years, and then I want to say by '93 I got kind of shipped over to uh, Roadrunner was starting a merch company called Blue Grape, Blue Grape Merchandising. I want to say the end of '92-ish, and they all the bands that were on the label, whoever did merch, they put their merch out with Blue Grape. So I was like, I shipped, I transferred over to that by the, for the last two years I was there, but I was also involved in the mailroom stuff too. But um, they had like every band had merch, and then they went outside of their stuff outside of roadrunner like a couple of year rake shirts i think bad religion had a long sleeve uh shirt or two and so i would answer phones i would open mail back then they didn't have i don't remember like like email type of orders back then it was all you know open the letter okay i want a large <laughs> this and a large that you know it was all organic it was it wasn't like now i'm gonna go online and order a large shirt you know back then it was like I think people would even send checks and maybe cash. I don't even remember that, but I know there was a lot of checks and I would go through all that. I would give it to my boss, uh, Felix, Sebace Felix Sebaceous, or uh, there was another guy, Joel Peskin, for a little bit from Long Island. He was Blue Oyster Colts uh, tour merchandiser and they hired him. And he was only there for like a year, year and a half. And then Felix came in and kind of really helped blow the company up and, um, He's been great too. I see him all the time at shows in the city. But but uh, Dave Kurdiak was another one, and um, we all kind of just—it was just the three of us for like a good year, just opening mail, answering phones, and <laughs> it wasn't like it now. It wasn't like I only go online and order. You had to mail it in physically with a stamp on it, and you know that was kind of like the first year or two. And then uh, I was I was there till 1994, late 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 fall 1994 and then that kind of merged in with when h2o started and then we started touring h2o the next year but that was kind of my first four years of you know up here and in, in new york city from moving up from you know outside of outside of washington dc that was that was my job for about four years so were you working for roadrunner simultaneously touring without crowd yeah. Yep. So we were, we did a couple of tours. We, um, we, so back in the early nineties, we, um, because of our, we were doing a lot of shows with killing time. Killing time was doing a lot of shows around the city and Alcrow would play with killing time. And so killing time was on blackout records at the time. And Anthony Carminelli, the singer of killing time kind of got us in with, uh, Blackout Records, and we did records on Blackout, Out Crowd, and we would tour a little bit. Not like, not like each dual tour where we're going to be gone eight, eight to twelve weeks, but like we would do, we would do like week runs or um, up and down the East Coast. We did like we did an early South by Southwest in uh, 1991, and uh, it was much smaller back then. Like not a lot of sponsors. It was like shows and clubs. It wasn't like. You know, this show was sponsored by Verizon or, you know, it was, it was very small back then. And then we did like another Midwest run. But, yeah, we, we would I was touring there and working in the mailroom, working in 
Blue Ribbon. They were cool with it, which was great back then. They were cool with me leaving for tours and and um and that kind of we did two records on Blackout till ninety four and then kinda ninety four, late ninety four, early ninety five was kinda when um when I kinda stopped working at Roadrunner as much and doing a little bit more outcrowd and then I went out crowd we decided to split next the following spring summer uh like Todd myself from Outcrowd sort of merged through through uh into H2O. Uh Rusty and Toby started H2O that fall of ninety four. Um and we were all living together in the same house. It was like eight dudes in a house and uh and Toby was working in the mailroom up until he was doing stuff with Sick of It All. So about ninety two, ninety three ish when he got really busy touring with Sick of It All was when Sick of It All put Scratch the Surface out and uh, they started touring year round or worldwide. It was I'd say ninety two, ninety three ish was when he really started not working at Roadrunner as much because he was touring so much with uh, with Sick of It All. And uh, but yeah, Toby and Rusty started H2O about I want to say October or November of ninety four, and then the first show, the first H2O show with Murphy's Law was uh, the very end of December of 1994. And um, it was about five, six months that went by uh, before Todd and I from Outcrowd merged into H2O. What's crazy to me is finding out that how ingrained you guys are with New York Hardcore, but you're from Maryland. <laughs> we we played with all, every one, pretty much every one of the Discord bands at the time. and then, But we were also into New York Hardcore too, and, and California Hardcore too. I mean, Circle Jerks. I mean, we were all those are those are the three main influences for H2O: Cali Hardcore, New York Hardcore, and DC Hardcore. And um, and we were kind of like it was. It's a different scene in DC, but it has a lot of similarities to the New York scene. But yeah, we all started in DC and just kind of moved our way up. I mean, like 1990 from from 80, I'd say 85 till 90 in in the DC scene, and then since 90 on in the New York scene. But we've always we've always loved Cali hardcore too, Cali punk and hardcore. So you're working at Roadrunner it all the way up till 94. And 94 is when mm-hmm. Don Fury H2O demo gets recorded. And also yep. the debut LP from Madball set it off. Yes. Yep. Yep. And I know that you are probably, fr- well, not probably, you're definitely friends with Madball. Stigma is yeah. even on the first H2O LP, maybe more than he's on the first Madball LP, as legend <laughs> would have it. But uh, what was it like being heavily involved, not only with Roadrunner Records, but also just New York and that scene when that album comes out? Howie Abrams, in 1989, was a relativity. He comes over to Roadrunner and... Um, he starts like a whole new vibe there. Like, like, um, Madball, Biohazard, Life of Agony, uh, Doggy Dog. And so Madball comes out the first Madball and, um, it definitely like changed. It was, I mean, it just sounded so clean and heavy and different from a lot of stuff that was going on there. And, um, I was, I was in the mail room and I, I grabbed the tape <laughs> and listened to it back at Blu-ray. I was like, well, I'm gonna check this out. You know, it's it's you know, like back then he he done done songs with with AF and Rogers brother, and I was like, this is awesome. It sounds like so heavy and 
just so big sounding. And um, and I used to go see like Continental before, like way back early ninety four ish, ninety five ish, and um, and it was just so it was so heavy and so different from a lot of other stuff that was going on at Rotor and and uh, Toby became really good friends with Freddie back then, as we all did late a little later on. But we did shows together uh, with H two O and and uh, Madball probably. I want to say we did a show at the PWAC in Long Island, 96. And uh, it was also Adam Blake's first show on bass with us after Eric Rice left. And uh, but we've been doing a lot of shows with Matt all over the years. And uh, it's always like a party. And whenever we do shows together, it's always like a good hang and a good party. And both of your bands are heavily influenced by nepotism because you got mm-hmm. Todd and you are in OutCrowd. And then you go on to form yep. H2O. And Outcrowd's album is produced by Larry Buxbaum. And yep. also the H2O self-titled album is produced by Larry. Yep. Jamie yep. Locke produces Agnostic Front's One Voice. Agnostic Front yep. goes on to form Madball <clears throat> with Freddie. And Jamie Locke produces yep. Set It Off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's clearly a conspiracy going on with the New York hardcore yeah. scene where you all are just in the same incestual group of ideas and friends. <laughs> As a drummer, Willie Shepler's drumming on this album is insane, right? Like how sick is oh, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will Shepler and I were working at a Baruch College bookstore in 1991, I believe. Uh, Winter 91, January 92. And um, I, I was in Outcrowd at the time. We were on Blackout. Both of us, like, we had to start working there at, like, 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. And um, cold winter. It was, like, a brutal cold New York City winter. And uh, we just started working together. And, like, we are like, yeah, I'm in a band. And, like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm in a band, too. Like, it was me, us, myself and Will and, like, 10 other people miserable 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 it was like no sleep probably you know 10 degrees outside and so i'm working with him for like a couple of weeks now where it's like going along and like he's like yeah i got a band we're called agnostic front i was like wait what you know like, right. like i didn't even know and i was working with him and you know he was like the coolest other dude working there and he's like yeah we got a new record coming out and uh called one voice and we're going to be touring europe soon i'm just doing this in between tours and i was like holy shit that's you know that's awesome i didn't even know we put two and two together and i was explaining we were going on blackout he was they were more busier touring at the time than outcrowd was and uh and then coming back around to madball set it off you know it was like oh shit you know he's in you know now we're doing shows together like four years later after all that we still we still joke about it to the day and uh but he's a really nice guy too he's, he's a funny guy we had some crazy late 90s nights running around new york city <laughs> but no he's a, he's, a, he's a really good guy he's a character like yeah willie's a funny guy he's drumming on the records insane we did uh h2o we did a coverage record uh 2011 and we did um pride and uh and uh so the song, uh, the song, Matt Henderson, who was original Madball guitar player, uh, in in the '94 set it off and demonstrate my style records. He um, 
he wrote basically wrote the song with Freddie and Hoya, but I believe he wrote the main guitarist. And uh, so when I went to go record the record, I was like, wait, is he playing double bass? Like, like, like in the middle part, there's like a, a part that sounds like a double bass. And uh, so I always thought it was a double bass. So then um, just recently, but about a year ago, we were doing a tour, an H2O tour run down south. And Toby's brother, uh, Todd, who he doesn't play with us full, full time like he used to. He comes in and out of tours and shows with us. Matt Henderson from Madball was playing second guitar for us. So I'm like joking around with Matt Henderson. I'm like, I'm like, oh, so, so Will plays double bass on that, on that, you know, the, on the pride, on the middle stuff. He's like, nope, all one foot. I was like, oh shit, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, like he's not, he's not doing double bass stuff. It's all one foot. Well, what is your fondest memory of working at Roadrunner? Uh, man, like, so I was like a kid, man. I was like, I was 19 years old. Like, it was just, it, it opened my eyes to like, basically like, I mean, I want to say like the music business. Like, I mean, I was, I was, I had a couple hundred bucks in my pocket and my name. Like, I mean, you know, just learning a lot. Like, um, you know, back then it was like, the original Roadrunner, the original Roadrunner uh, people that I work with, we're still friends today, which is awesome. With most of them, I, there's a couple that you you know you kind of lose touch with over the years, but I mean it's going back 30 years, and I'm still like, you know, messaging people that I work with about something we saw, or and I mean it, it was such a cool time too because you know it was pre-internet, you know it, it was a different way to get music back then compared to now, and um, and uh, you know, there's there's a couple of people I'll, I'll message you after the show that will probably have a lot of cool things to say. They would they'd be interested in talking to you as well. Um, but uh, no, just learning like the other part of the business because I've been touring and playing shows since 1987 when I was 15, 16 years old. And um, but when I was 19 moving up here, just seeing like you know how. I, I'm much happy. I'm glad I worked at a place like that instead of like, you know, Epic Records or a major label because, you know, it's different vibe, you know, and it was more up my alley, you know, it wasn't pop music or, you know, bad pop or whatever. It was like heavy stuff and punk and alternative rock and, and, uh, metal and death metal and, um, you know, like just learning all kinds of different music inside of my realm of what I listened to already, you know? Um, Cause I, I, I grew up on, you know, skate punk and new wave and DC hardcore and New York hardcore, but this working there just opened my eyes and got to experience other things too. And being 20, 19 years old, it was like, Holy shit. You know, like, you know, even though I didn't make a lot of money working there, which you know, look, looking back on it, it's like, wow, <laughs> how do I even keep the lights on? But at the same time, different times, different things were different, priced differently back then. But but looking back on it now, I'm like, who cares? Like, I had fun and I met a lot of people and, um, and a lot of people I would eventually become friends with 30 years later that I'm still friends with now. Mad respect to Todd. Hopefully you'll see him mopping many suckas on the road sooner than later. But in the meantime, support the cause at h2omerch.com for exclusive shirts and hoodies.
What's up, friends? This is Rick Jimenez of the Stiff Shots Podcast Network and host of Thrashers, Slashers, and the Road to WrestleMania, which airs every single Monday where myself and a guest discuss a movie and an album of their choice and the WrestleMania from the same year. This week, I'm joined by Straight From The Path guitar player and mad scientist, gambling and New York Rangers enthusiast, and my old friend, Tom Williams. We're talking about everything 2001, which includes the benchmark album Jane Doe by Converge, the movie Rockstar, which stars both Marky Mark and Rachel Green, and the second of a trilogy of main events between The Rock and Steve Austin at WrestleMania 17. Subscribe on whatever platform you get your Stiff Shots Podcast Network shows at, and join the overly caffeinated fun with Thrasher Slashers on the road to WrestleMania. All right, so let's get it popping with this main event. Burn My Eyes by Machine Head was released on Roadrunner Records in 1994, produced by Colin Richardson. He also produced Labelmate's Fear Factory album, Demanufacture, kinda. Recorded simultaneously in the same studio as Rancid's Let Go, Green Day's Dookie, and Tesla's Bust a Nut, Edison was banned from Fantasy Studios. My friend Nick from Job for a Cowboy joined me to talk about this album on the anniversary of Deftones Adrenaline, whose promo photos were taken at the video shoot for Machine Head's first single. Is that a coincidence? Probably. Alright, so today we are talking about the 1994 debut album by Machine Head entitled Burn My Eyes, originally titled Davidian, off of the song Davidian. Their first album in general, but also their first album with Roadrunner Records. Cover done by Dave McKean, who also did the cover for Frontline Assembly's Millennium album that we'll be covering soon. But he was into, uh, he did all the Sandman comic books, graphic novels. Have you ever seen the original cover for this album? No, I haven't. It's just a, a static TV with the that like construction looking machine head logo, the MH that's yellow and black. Wow. I wonder, was that like a, like a Roadrunner decision to to be like yeah we we gotta do something cooler i think it was a rob flynn decision later on he just really connected with the the song old versus davidian because uh you know davidian of course is the first song on the album the big single the song everyone thinks of with this album but old i mean i i have several old uh cd singles like they were really pushing old in 95 versus when the album came out so i think that you know he really thought that old was going to be the hit maybe so he uses the lyrics from that and then uh, also seeing the painting that Dave McKean did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's such an iconic cover. It really is one of my, you know, it's, it's really, really well done. So I could see how him, you know, that coming out after the factor and being like, Oh shit, no wait, that's gotta be the cover. You know, And it's funny actually now, like uh, I actually like, I think I like old better than Davidian. I always liked old better than Davidian. Davidian is just, of course, like I said, the uh, most bands have a song on an album and you think of that typically the lead single Davidian. No, uh, right. No different, but I always thought that Old was uh, just kind of a little bit uh, more of a well-structured song. I mean, Davidian has got that big anthemic, you know, let freedom ring. But I always thought that Old was, uh, and maybe because I had the CD single, because I had the old CD single before I had the album, Burn My Eyes. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. It came with a uh, Hard um, Hard Times by the Cro-Mags cover and also a Poison Idea cover. And I think that is what the... uh, convincing factor for me on top of it being like i think a dollar 99 at the time like you mentioned earlier uh, from tower records i was like oh i'm gonna check this out i like that machine head song and i like the chromag so i'll listen to them man it makes me just thinking about that and kind of like hanging out at tower records there's this place called cd warehouse i used to get my stuff from man i miss that i miss a being a kid riding bikes and that's the way that you got around but b like 
going to a record store and that's how you yeah, it was an event in and of it's like what you did like music was a, th a thing that you did you know like you would go and for the, the event for the day was we'd go to the mall get food whatever we'd go to tower records and you'd be in there for an hour and a half and like listening to shit checking shit out spending whatever money you had on it it was just this experience you would you would get the album and and you know like adhere it into your soul you'd listen to it and that was a thing in and of itself and you'd flip through the book and read the lyrics as you were listening to the songs and and you had to spend 17 bucks on the cd you know and uh, it was like if you had something you loved it and i think that that's that's a little bit different now so i'm thinking back uh, i was just thinking about this record and and what we were going to potentially talk about and stuff and i was just like oh man like going back to to those days you know like I have loved this record. I like, you know, it was like a, a physical possession that I had to pay for and owned and loved. And now it's like, Oh yeah, I might check that out. You know, maybe I'll like a song or two. And if I don't, then I just delete it out of my library forever. There's not this, like the connection to the, to the music, um, the way that it was when I was growing up. Yeah. That, that romance is definitely different. And you, you talk about how it was an event to go get music and how you had to spend that money. And I think that that, definitely influenced a lot of albums that I love from this time frame and even a little bit later, because if I listen to an album for the first time, let's say even today, you know, self-criticizing here, but I listen to it for the first time and then I'm not just obsessed with it, then I move on with my life and I'm never going to listen to it again because I didn't have to walk to the mall and then get a bus to the CD store and then spend, you know, whatever money I made mowing Mrs. Brown's lawn down the street. She never paid me for edging the lawn. She only paid me for the actual mowing and then expected me to do full service like landscaping, probably because I'm Hispanic. But then I would have these records and if I listened to it the first time and I didn't love it, I was getting my $17 worth. I would keep listening to it and I eventually did love it. And that's even kind of the case with Burn My Eyes, to be honest with you. When I first got Burn My Eyes, I wasn't in love with every song. There was the songs like Davidian and Old and uh, uh, None But My Own that I immediately took to, but maybe some of the slower ones, like, um, where's my cool sheet of paper where I was trying to keep up with them, like uh, The Rage to Overcome or something like that that didn't immediately hit with me. It eventually did because I'm having that romantic relationship. Like you said, I got the booklet. I'm looking at it. What bands did they think? I want to go listen to those bands. What bands are they going on tour with? I mean, it literally is so easy. Anybody that owns a, a, a laptop or even a phone now, you know, can, can make something that sounds sonically decent and it's easy to, to to edit and that kind of stuff but um i think that you know back then having that connection with records was maybe you know potentially easier because i don't know i don't want to say there was more heart or whatever in it you know but i it just the i feel like the commitment levels were higher back then you know what i mean it's easier to make things which is cool because there's all this creativity that can happen but also right. there's there's not that it's a perfect way you put it, a filtration system where everything is, I don't want to say even coming to the top, everything is sitting on the surface because nothing can rise to the top when everything is kind of middle ground because maybe you don't take that extra time to polish it and make something that's as timeless as this record we're about to talk about today. I'm 38 now. And as you start to get older, um, it's more and more difficult. And I don't know if it's a process um, that is evolved a sort of alongside that technology which you know tying it back into if, if you know there is less filtration or whatever we want to use to say that things um i don't know don't don't have as much 
essence or, 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 or animus or, or whatever word we want to say. I don't know if it's a com- uh, combination of that and getting old or if it's the getting old thing. And then, you know, I don't know. I just find it so hard to for, for – it's really difficult for new stuff to get that th- the level of – like enjoyment or like connection that lasts, you know, for me, you know, like it's very rare to a hear something new for me and, and like it and much less let it be ever become something iconic, like burn my eyes. Cause that just like, because you know, when you're in your adolescence, you're growing, you're becoming a person, you're, you're, you're starting to define your value set. And you know, these records that are, are, helping you do that you know the music that you listen to when you're growing up maybe will just always have a special place that nothing ever else can really touch but i don't know if that's 100 percent true though because there are you know it's difficult but there are records that have come out you know in the last 10 years that are iconic for me and like incredibly important so burn my eyes comes out in 94 when this album came out is that when you got into it because i didn't get into machine head in general until a different burning when the red was burning in 99. And then I went backwards. Uh, I vaguely knew who they were when 10 ton hammer came out from more things change, but I wasn't like a machine head fan until the burning red, just from the timeline of my, my, uh, my age of when I would have been really consuming music at a high rate like that. Um, And I mean, to this day, I love the burning red and I know that it's kind of controversial. It's either a polarizing kind of thing, but I have no, problem saying that burn my eyes is probably a better record than the burning red even though i like the burning red more because of that romance i remember it coming out i remember going to get it on release day i remember seeing his cool hair in the from this day video i still have my shirt that i got from blue grape but um (laughs) when burn my eyes came out were you already aware of machine head were you aware of him in that time frame uh i mean so my brother got the record i don't remember i think it was literally just you know back when you know like uh like we said, exploring a record store and you're in the metal section or whatever. And, uh, I don't know if it was called new metal section back then. I can't remember. (laughs) But, um, you know what? Actually, when I grew up, um, a lot, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the music and especially where I grew up in, in, uh, um, I spent, probably seven years of my life growing up in Janesville, Wisconsin. I was born in Colorado, but parents got divorced and I ping pong back and forth uh, through grade school. And um, it was called, like everything was called alternative, at least in this small little town where I was from and even kind of up in like Madison and shit. Uh, Wisconsin, there everything was under this umbrella of an alternative. You're like, what do you listen to? Alternative? Oh, like what? Like, oh, you know, Metallica, you know, Nirvana, Pantera, Stone Temple Pilots, like it all. Like I, I didn't have that subgenre thing. It was all under this umbrella of alternative. So, anyways, um, you know, we were at uh, Tower Records, I think, and just checking through stuff. You know, like they would have the little listening station set up, and there'd be like ten, fifteen records, whatever. You just you know click the button for which which record you want to listen to or skip to the CD player, and do it. And um, my brother had found it. I, I don't remember what I got that day. Might have been Adrenaline or something like that. Probably. <laughs> yeah. So my brother got it, and you know he was the first person to get his license. Obviously, he was about thirteen year, thirteen months older than me, and so um, he put it in, and you know we just. Davidian was the first track and it was just fucking on. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was just way down with it from that time. So that was, I think 94. So we got it like pretty much right when they came out at that time. I mean, I was probably pretty very, you know, pretty heavily into obviously the, the whole Metallica catalog, Pantera, Soundgarden, 
uh, I mean, that whole wave, you know, Soundgarden, Nirvana, um, Alice in Chains, big Alice in Chains fan, that kind of stuff. So Machine Head was cool because it was, um, you know, specifically Burn My Eyes was cool because it was like, I don't know, the vibe of it just had the, it was kind of my first foray into that. I don't know if you want to say even just kind of chunkier guitars because, like, obviously Pantera, you know, but Machine Head had this, I don't know, I almost want to say, like, not necessarily heavier as in they were a heavier band than Pantera or whatever, but just the sound itself, the actual timbre of the instruments, maybe the, you know, the down tuning or whatever, but it was just, it was, it was, it was new to me. Yeah, I definitely can uh, can see where you're coming from with that. It feels more, I don't know, like it's just beating the crap out of you, right? Like it's just very, uh, very. What is the word I'm looking for? Pummeling. It's a very pummeling. Pummel. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Versus Pantera, you're you're almost having a party when you're listening to Pantera. I mean, I know that maybe you want to rip your shirt off and uh, swing your arms around, but you're having a good time. It kind of puts you in a good mood. Whereas Burn My Eyes puts you in a mood that you're ready for war. You want to fight somebody. Yeah. It was. It, it was. Um the feel the overall vibe of it you know like uh i mean it's it's you know it's obviously a very you know pissed off record the message so the impotence of the band existing is that rob flynn is playing guitar in a band called violence at the time who are like a speed metal band and he wants to do something a little little slowed down he wants to kind of get groovy with it he doesn't know that he's basically becoming a new metal forefather at the time despite putting cornrows in his hair he wants to just kind of get things nice and groovy so he makes this demo of the song death church that we're going to talk about on the album and he submits that song because he wants to apply to be the guitar player for ministry so he sends that song to al jurgensen and al jurgensen is not trying to be new metal yet he doesn't want to do that until a couple years later so he does not get the job as being the guitar player for ministry. So he decides, you know what? I like the song that I made. Violence is like, hey, this isn't fast enough for us. So he uh, does a couple more songs on a demo. He does Death Church, Old, Rage to Overcome, Nation on Fire, and Realize, Realize, Realize with Block as like one track. Logan Mater is brought in to the fold to do this demo as well as Adam Deuce. And uh, this is the first time either one of them have been in any band. So you got this vet who's been in violence, who wanted to be in ministry, who creates Machine Head with these rookies that he's bringing in. And Logan actually has a a huge impact on the writing process, as does Adam, because Adam originally wanted to be the guitar player, but Logan was chosen to be guitar instead. So even as the bassist, Adam is contributing song ideas and riffs and things like that. I think more so later on in the in the band's career than with burn my eyes but you know so he's got three riffers going into this album which is probably why it's got so many non-stop hooks with the guitars you know yeah that makes sense that's crazy i did not know any of that this is the biggest selling debut album on roadrunner at the time and would maintain that position until what album do you think overtook it slipknot that's right of course they break all the records they were the first platinum band on roadrunner they were the first uh, the best selling debut So it's a big deal for the label Roadrunner at the time because they have this big hit with this brand new band, you know, that they can. And in 94, as we talk about on the show a lot, Roadrunner is really trying to find their identity. They're putting out a lot of random crazy things. And by crazy, I don't mean, I mean, they're all sick, but they're crazy if you were to look at what comes before and after. (laughs) 94 is kind of a interesting time for them. So they're excited about this new band that's kind of a hit for them. 
and they put a lot of money into supporting that band. So the band goes on tour in the UK with Slayer. Uh, they do a US tour with Slayer and Biohazard. The first tour for the album that they do is with Roadrunner label mates Obituary. You know, so they're really putting a lot of focus on the tour support. And then uh, when the album gets so successful in the US, they start to really focus on Europe again because that's where Roadrunner's kind of headquartered. So they take a then unknown band called Mushuga to open for them. Not, not only that, but in on that European tour, Rob breaks his wrist, and so Martin from Mashuga plays guitar for Machine Head. No way. That is fucking crazy. We get to the actual creation of the album. Like I said earlier, they originally are going to call it Davidian off of the, the first single, but instead they end up going with Burn My Eyes to kind of reflect off of not only the artwork that Dave McKean makes, but also the title... Uh, not the title track, the lyrics of the song Old, which they think is going to be this big hit. Um, although I'm sure they had plans for Davidian too. That's why it's the first single. Uh, the video for Davidian has Rob kind of being like what I imagine he thinks like a hip hop star in Oakland, California is with the cornrows and the pit bull puppies and stuff. What did you think about this video when you first saw it as a, as a stinker? Um, you know, I was... I was very open, I guess, back then. I didn't really have a lot of the... I wasn't really introduced into, like, um, elitism at all until really, you know, when I joined Cephalic Carnage, you know, and, like, kind of got into the uh, the death metal scene. And at, at that time, I didn't, you know... Like, I was talking to the, to the Cephalic Carnage guys about, like, hey, man, do you like this Nothing Face record? And they were just like... I was like, what? It's awesome, <laughs> you know? And, like, so that was my really first experience of them kind of being like, no, man, you, you know, the world you come from is not cool. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all one giant world. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have all the separations, you know, of like, oh, that's thrash metal and that's death metal and that's, you know, grunge and that's, you know, new metal and blah, 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 blah. It was all kind of like just one big giant world of, of you know, music that was either good or bad, you know, and bands that I either liked or didn't. And so um, uh, I didn't have any issue with, you know, like the, the, the whole cornrow kind of, uh, you know, hip hop rap kind of world. You know what I mean? I grew up on. Obviously, that same time era was when, you know, Snoop Dogg and Dre and uh, Nate Dogg and, and um, Warren G and all that stuff really kind of came out. That whole West, West Coast hip-hop thing kind of took MTV by storm, too. So it was all kind of one world. Yeah, but I wasn't bothered by it. The same thing, same way as I'm not, uh, you know, burn my eye, or I'm uh, Burning Red. I, f I fucking love that record. Still to this day, I think I honestly might like Burning Red better than Burn My Eyes. Burning Red is not only, I mean, hopefully I get to do an episode on this, but Burning Red's not only my favorite Machine Head album, it's one of my favorite albums of all time. Like, it's it's a probably a top 20 ever for me. Yeah. And since I heard Burning Red and saw the From This Day video way before I ever heard Davidian or saw that video, to me, there was no disconnect. The funny thing for me was when I would hype up Burning Red, you know, older people would be like, oh, man, you know, they're they're like this rappy new metal thing now and then i listened to the video and saw the video and i'm like well i think he's always been <laughs> like i don't know if this is a new thing for him it seems like it's pretty cohesive i think you just didn't recognize it before because they were playing with slayer and now they're playing with cold chamber so you can't reconcile yeah. it learning about rob's you know hit past or whatever you know what i mean i've had some some really interesting conversations with them back especially when we were on the mayhem tour and you know he would we played right before them so we would Obviously, just there was plenty of time to hang out with each other. Um, and uh, he would come work out with us and stuff, too. And um, 
And I remember talking to him and, uh, about, you know, some of those, you know, just kind of the whole Oakland lifestyle, you know, and it was fucking rough, man. You know what I mean? Like it was involved in some pretty hardcore shit, you know what I mean? And so like that, that character that the, you know, like the, the environment that you come from, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense to me, you know, even the look, you know, kind of bleeding in to um into this metal band you know kind of bringing some of those you know that really like kind of fucking hood oakland survival shit you know what i mean yeah i mean even the the grooves and rhythms of this record sound like they're influenced by that hip-hop culture and even when they would practice these songs they did it uh, in this crappy downtown warehouse where like there were vagrants and homeless people everywhere and so they would play actually like popular rap songs of that time like Snoop Dogg and things like that to kind of entertain them and also so they wouldn't be bummed out that this you know heavy metal band is <laughs> practicing where they're trying to sleep <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah th there's always been parallels I think drawn between you know it's like a, the extremisms of culture you know what I mean like it's a sort of a especially at that younger age there's this really rebellious factor of sort of rejecting you know the the uh the status quo worldview, you know? And so I think that there's a lot of compatibility between the, the ideological framework of, um, you know, sort of fuck the system type of shit, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's very easy to see, especially being around that environment and that kind of stuff. It's very easy to see that, that influences bleed in, you know, we're, we're very, we're sponge like creatures and we've got these mirror neurons and you know, what you have yourself surrounded by gets in you know, how environments can influence artists, so to speak. And so I think where Rob came from, that, you know, it definitely made its way into uh, the lyrical content and just the over, even the imagery of, of the band. Well, speaking of lyrical content, Davidian, who's, of course, iconic, I don't know if you call it a chorus or, or call out, is Let Freedom Ring with a Shotgun Blast, originally was Get the Fuck Up to a Bone-Breaking Groove. Yes! Oh, Rob, that's great, man. Um, yeah, Can you, how would that... Get the fuck up to a bone-breaking groove! I wonder if I'll ever be able to hear that fucking song again without singing. <laughs> <laughs> this song is about the Waco standoff. Uh, not even the first time we've talked about a song being about Waco on this show. Uh, Sepultura's Chaos AD has a song about Waco as well, but I guess it was a huge cultural phenomenon at the time you know That's even to this day there was a mini series about it within the last year or two on the netflix.com really well done if you didn't see it yeah um that's funny because uh you know i guess at that time the news cycle wasn't a 24-hour cycle but i do remember you know if i were to look back at my life growing up and be like what what was on the news and, and what do you remember from it um is that because it would it would be you know, there'd be their special reports or whatever, but there would be like, you know, the news is on at five and at seven and at 10, whatever. And uh, that was one of the things. Waco was huge back then. OJ trial, that was massive. It's so funny that I didn't make that connection until right now that that's what that fucking song was about. <laughs> of course, in 2017, uh, after the uh, Vegas shootings, Rob said that he was never going to play this song again because he didn't like that people were using it as an anthem for guns. And uh, he didn't play it one night and then he continued to play it to this day i bet it didn't didn't go over very well when he didn't play that <laughs> i guess it was in vegas the one show that he didn't play was actually in vegas so maybe they respectfully appreciated his i'll give it i'll give it yeah i'll give it that you know what i mean i have a pretty 
hard line when it comes to, um, you know, uh, censoring your art, especially a former art that didn't have the same intention. You know, if somebody's going to take something and turn it into something else, um, and then you, you know, it's like letting people steal the intention of the song from you. You know what I mean? But in that specific case, obviously, you know, they're playing, vi- you know, any anytime there's, you know, something that is like extremely sensitive and you're playing that exact place in a very close proximity to the, to the time frame, Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that was just the, the respectful thing to do, you know? No, I agree. I think that the sillier part of that is to announce you're never going to play the song again, because like you said, that's like letting people take away your art from you. But no, I don't think there's anything wrong with him not playing it at the site of the tragedy or whatever. Or, you know, change the lyrics that night to, Get the fuck up to a bone-breaking groove. He should have brought it back. This is the perfect time to reintroduce the original lyrics. So then we have the song Old, which, like I said, I have like three or four different CD singles for. This is a Logan Mater song, one of the handful of songs that he wrote the riffs for. And it's about if Jesus were present day talking the gospel, how uh, everyone would just call him an old man and not really care about what he had to say. Which uh, isn't too different from the biblical representation of Jesus. I don't think he was known for being well-received, so much so that they uh, murdered him on a cross. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really cool concept, too. I, I had... Uh, actually, I think that concept kind of has existed in probably in, in various forms throughout the past 2,000 years. We have a song on uh, on Cephalic Carnage's record um, called When I Arrive. And uh, Len originally came up with it. <laughs> he pulled it from American Pie, where it was like, you know, when the dad's talking to Jason about, you know, he's like, you know, and then when you arrive, you know, <laughs> Len wrote the song about uh, when, you know, if, if Jesus were to return, or Yeshua, as you know, you would, you would call him, uh, it, when if he were to return, um, that we would just re-crucify him. But interesting when you think about, too, that this is, like I said, Logan's first band. So him, this is like it. Old is like his his debut, and he's just killing it right out the gate. The next song is A Thousand Lies, which is probably my favorite song on the album for no other reason than my man says slow at the end and then slows it down. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the, I think it's one of the catchier choruses, too. Yeah, definitely uh, one of the earlier incarnations of the, like, straight-up singing, too, of, of Rob. Yeah, and at which I'm, you know, I like the singing. I think A Thousand Lies is definitely one of the, the newer, riffier things. I mean, those first three tracks, Old, Davidian, Thousand Lies, are all very much the groundwork of what, not only what they would do in the future, but just, like, heavy music going forward for the next, you know, five, ten years, probably because, like you said, some people are listening to this, then they're going into their band practice, and they're accidentally rewriting Davidian. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's some kind of iconic parts, you know, especially in the guitar work here, you know, uh, those, the harmonics, you know, um, that I think are sort of, I think any artist in the world, especially stringed instrument players, I think one of the sort of subconscious, if not conscious, holy grails or, or, or like massive desired outcome that you could have from, from your playing ability is that people could hear uh, a short snippet of music and know that was you. And um, I think that, you know, some artists today have been able to do it. The Gojira, the, the, the Gojira pick scrape, that's, Gojira owns that now. And if you do, and if you play that, people are going to be like, oh, he's doing the, you know, 
taking doing the Gojira thing. Rob sort of harmonic, the use of the harmonics to me was, you know, I think that it was massively influential in, into the into the scene that would come out from that. I agree. You know, I like to focus a lot on this record on how the the single note kind of newer uh, groovier riffs on how influential it is on that. But you're you're not wrong in stating that the harmonic thing really wasn't as heavily implemented in heavy music as it it starts to be after this record. So that's a that's a great point to make. For me, I'd never really heard the usage of it and like deliberate, blatant quarter notes, half notes, you know, of 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 pinch harmonics. Whereas you know it might be, you know. I guess the squeal, the pinch squeal, you know, with 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 uh, Zach Wild, you know, the kind of '80s, you know, doing the kind of that thing. But like uh, to me, I just I always uh, always will be associated with Machine Head. To me. No, I agree. And even if it's like you said, maybe they're not the first to do it or even the best to do it. It would be hard to deny that this may be the most widespread exposure. Of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a huge album. Like we just said, it's the biggest selling debut in Roadrunner history at this time. So this is probably the first time a lot of people heard it, whether that's the first time it was done before. Then we have uh, None But My Own, which is a really important song to me. We I talk about on when I go over the Chaos AD album, how uh, Slave New World has one of the most important riffs of all time to me as far as laying the foundation for new metal down. It's got that... None But My Own has a similarly, to me, important riff in the new history because halfway through the song when it does the... Uh... Had to have influenced a generation of guitar players to do that exact riff and call it Revolution Revolution. <laughs> yeah. The bass tone on this record was really sweet, too. I mean, he, you know, the, the bass work in machine head has always been very supportive you know it's a very supportive role um but the tone that they that he's able to get out of it it's, it's like this kind of bulldozery you know really like um aggressive but not in this sort of swedish like way over distorted vibe it still has really good chunk and bass to it and um, I remember in, in uh, this track specifically, I was just like, oh, yeah. And I think that comes from Adam being a a guitar player at heart and kind of transitioning that that attack of it to the bass. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it would also make sense, too. Like, you can kind of hear when guitar players become bass players, um, the way that they approach it, you know. It's very, very, very much su- support the riff, support the guitar riff. Yeah, it's, it, you can tell that they're normally focused on being part of the rhythm section versus being something that cuts through and stands out. Right, yeah. Melo- even melodically, it's about, you know, supporting. I mean, that's like, you know, the traditional role of the bass guitar was to was to provide a foundation for everything. And I think, like, that's, you know, for me, that's, it's funny because sometimes, I'll you know, people will want to um, – I'll get asked to do some projects and stuff that, like, I like the music as a whole, but – as a bass player, I wouldn't be interested in playing in that band. Um, not Machine Head, I would totally be done with that. But um, <laughs> if the bass were doing cool shit, which were like I would want to do as a bass player, you know, to keep myself entertained as a bass player, it would take away from, I don't know, maybe the overall heaviness of the record. And I think that that's, that's kind of like where the bass sits for Machine Head, especially, you know, with these older records, is to 
uh, provide that you know, crushing supportive role. So then we have The Rage to Overcome, which is probably one of my lesser favorite songs on the album. It's a little uh, dronier, maybe a little uh, slower. doesn't have the, the punch that a lot of the songs do. But at the same time, I respect its inclusion in the album because you can't just have nonstop, you know, attack for an hour. You got to have that dynamics. You know, if it's heavy all the time, it ain't heavy. Mm. Also inspired by a quote from the Oakland Tribune, where the writer ended his article about the LA riots, that they were going into it with an open mind and a closed fist. So Rob was like, oh, I bet I could write a four and a half minute slugfest about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's funny how, you know, again, listening to the lyrics, um, or listening to the record again last night, and, uh, and listening to the lyrics and stuff, and how this, like, energy of uh i guess i read a book one time called um fractal time by a guy named greg braden it's pretty crazy stuff it's similar to the terrence mckenna stuff uh time wave zero um where there's fractals all in nature right i mean like we can see you know this the shape of a uh that a human fetus uh, or pretty much any animal fetus has that, that golden spiral. And then that we see all the way out to galaxies, um, that the f- fractal patterns repeat themselves infinitely small and infinitely large. And, um, but that this guy sort of argued that there was fractal time, fractal energy in nature. And that, so as we, as we go through the spiral of time, that this sort of um, novelty of events like the specific energy wave, energy frequency that um, uh, influences the events that unfold repeats itself. And maybe it doesn't necessarily exactly repeat itself, but it rhymes. And um, it was just funny listening to this record again and being like, oh, shit, you know, like a lot of these lyrical concepts are now relevant again, you know, however many years later, you know, almost, almost 30 years later. Um, and so I thought that was kind of interesting listening back to it and just being like, oh yeah, it must have been like right up, you know, post riots in LA. And like, here we are in this kind of same civil unrest and like the same sort of like, you know, fed up with the way that shit is, um, type of energy has, has repeated itself. So it was interesting listening back to that again and like having a stronger focus on, on the lyrics. It's interesting that you mentioned that because when I was listening to it, that was my initial reaction too. like oh, you know what, these lyrics mean the same thing all over again. But then it really made me think, well, did it ever stop? Did these things ever stop in the first place? Have they ever not been relevant? Maybe they became less relevant because he didn't, uh, Rob, he didn't sing about them as much anymore. You know, the future records after Burn My Eyes don't have quite that same punk approach to the lyrics, you know, punk rock kind of thing. Um, But I, I, uh, I definitely don't, disagree that they're relevant today just as much as they were in 94 but i wonder if there was really ever a point where you know they they didn't uh speak volumes as much as now it's just in our face all the time in the news cycle they came and they went but i don't think they ever stopped i do think i i do think that there's there's two ways out of it the two a's there's you know either annihilation annihilation or asteroid is the one that i always use <laughs> okay asteroid uh or aliens oh um, that uh, the only thing I think that could really unite everybody um, was to, to, to know for a fact that, you know, 
A, we're not alone in the universe, and B, we, we are a human family. We are. I mean, there's, you know, like, there's a, imagine seeing a different, completely different species of, you know, of, of uh, sentient life, of intelligent life that's completely different physical form from us that we could say, that's different. We're fucking one family, one race, you know, like, there's a, <laughs> we want to be able to get along with that, you know what I mean? And we, we should, because if they have the capability of getting here, uh, then they've overcome or the inherent drive to destroy themselves. Cause I think that that sometimes, um, is one of the big reasons I think that the Fermi, you know, paradox or whatever is explained is the reason we don't see as many extraterrestrial life forms as we should based off of the sheer vastness of numbers uh, of the size of the universe. There's no way that there shouldn't be hundreds of thousands of intelligent civilizations. The reason we don't see them is because there is this inherent drive towards self-destruction. If you don't destroy yourselves, if you don't have your, your inherent, you know, infighting and don't nuke yourselves to death, um, that's the only way to expand your technology to move beyond just nuclear technology and be able to get to the energy where you could potentially harness the energy from the sun or figure out, you know, zero, uh, um, zero point energy or vacuum energy to be able to have interstellar travel. So basically like if you can develop interstellar travel, you would have have to, had to overcome, uh, those sort of, uh, old evolutionary paradigms of, of, of dominance and imperialism and, 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 uh, morality and, and, uh, you know, survival of the fittest, that kind of shit. You'd have to get past that. So if they can reach us, that they would most likely be benevolent and want to help us. And I just, you know, wonder what they would think about uh, Machine Head. I was going to say, I wonder what they would think about Burn My Eyes and if it's more or less new metal than the Burning Red. Yeah, like what is what would you expect, you know? I think that they would probably be into the Burning Red. All right, so then we have the first song written for the album, Death Church. And this was inspired by the band Godflesh. They have a song called Like Rats. And, uh, you know, I'm not too familiar with Godflesh. When I had Bo from the band Harm's Way on, he said that his band was inspired by Godflesh. And, I mean, I know they're kind of like an industrial kind of band. Is that right? This UK kind of thing. But they have these really cool tonality, the, 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 the timbre, you know, like the sound of, of uh, uh, their tones are just iconic you know in a lot of ways i i was not privy to them until um zach from cephalic carnage got me into got me into them and it was funny because was uh, it right after you showed them nothing face they were like no nah, you can't listen to this <laughs> uh we were at the uk border actually and um those are always you know really fun times because it's, it's always like four in the morning and you're at the crossing and uh you're exhausted or drunk or, or both or, you know, whatever. And then Zach had his Godflesh hoodie on and uh, it made the border process super smooth because the, the agent was a Godflesh fan. And so he was like, oh man, I love Godflesh, you know, and they <laughs> went into this whole thing. So that's cool. I didn't, I didn't know that either. I'm learning so much. Godflesh, like you uh, mentioned, have, have like these unique tones and are kind of like an industrial kind of thing. And they have a lot of those heavy sampling at the beginning of this song with the, the Death Church. And actually, at this time, even on one of my old uh, CD singles, it, it presents Machine Head as an industrial thrash band. Like it uses the word industrial as their, as their like advertising. Wow. Um, which is interesting because, you know, they're not. But also right. because uh, clearly there was some point like writing a song influenced by an industrial band that they maybe were leaning towards that. But uh, yeah, that's interesting too, to think about 
you know, Rob, because I didn't know that he tried out for ministry, you know, and that, that uh, I wonder if there was some, if he wanted to have that influence, you know, if he wanted people to, if there was a wave happening that he was like, yeah, I fucking dig this. Well, well especially with this song, because this is the song he sent sent to Al, so it definitely, maybe he was trying to make it a little bit more Digimortal than the rest of the stuff. Death Church, right? That's Death Church, yeah. Now, and then A Nation of Fire, or A Nation on Fire, that was one of the ones, obviously, that pulled me, uh, you know, lyrical content-wise that we were talking about. Earlier, you know. Sure, sure. Another Logan Mater song. Logan writes the riffs for this one. Nation on Fire is definitely um, a good song. I mean, this album has no bad songs, so I want to be clear on that. But Nation on Fire is not one of my top picks. When I go to, you know, make my cardio playlist, I'm not putting Nation on Fire on. It's not getting, it's not beating out Thousand Lives. Now, if they said slow a bunch of times on this song and slow the tempo halftime, or went the other way, said fast, and then just triple it. Car- yeah. yeah. For cardio, you'd, you'd want them to go fast and then double the riff, right? Right, right. Oh, that's true. I guess with, well, with the slow, though, I just start stomping you know, while I'm running, break my leg, break through the, the treadmill. <laughs> but uh, yeah, nation on fire is a, is a cool song, but definitely if I'm, if I'm making a, a top five on the album, nation on fire, isn't making it. Okay. Fair enough. How about blood for blood? Blood for blood is definitely making it. Are you kidding me with those punches in the face at the very beginning? I don't know how they even make that noise, but this is like the thrashiest song on the album to me. It's very like uh got those like i said it's got those weird opening hits but it feels more like a a punk song especially like i said it's got uh this album during the sessions for this they did a chromax cover they also do a poison idea cover and you i feel like this song had to be written around the times he's listening to those bands because it's very like fast and thrashy and and in your face yep mm-hmm. yeah I, I i i dig this track i um i don't know i kind of come for for some reason I don't know what it is like the the sanctified gospel upbeat uh, uh, drum thing for me has always been one that has taken me a long time to to really appreciate you know um, the boot dats and the dat boots you know and um, even when I first heard blasting I fucking hated it you know what I mean like uh, I just I, it was just like I don't know. It just sounded like noise to me, you know? And so it's taken me a long time to even the whole thrashy stuff, like the faster something was like, I actually was kind of less of a fan of it. I just feel like it didn't have time to give the riffs. I don't know that they couldn't, they couldn't land as hard. So for, for me, like, um, machine head wise, I actually kind of actually really dug a lot of the slower stuff. Um, even on, uh, like one of my favorite machine head tracks is, um, yep violate off uh the more things change and um i just love the super slow like slow build slow burn type of a track but i think rob's voice works really well when he's got you know he's he's got the dynamic range in the emotional level that's coming through and that song really really lets it build and that kind of stuff um so yeah i kind of you know for me personally i've kind of dig the the slower to medium tempo stuff but then it's like kind of the same thing um like we were talking about before if it's all one thing the whole time it's boring you know you got to have the dynamics you need to have the fast songs so that the slow songs are slow you need to have the slow songs so the fast songs are fast you know yeah i think that might be why i like blood for blood so much is because it comes right after nation on fire so i'm like i'm ready you know i got all this pent-up energy i'm ready to go fast and uh 
I do think though, I will say, cause you mentioned not only the drums don't really let the riffs kind of breathe. And right. then the, uh, the vocals on this song are kind of weird, almost like he's doing like a punk rock character. It doesn't sound like the vocals on the rest of the songs. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, but you know, I, like, again, I'm a big fan of dynamics and I feel like that that's super important. You know, also another, another cool thing about this song is just that bass intro. You know what I mean? Like the tone on that bass thing. I love, I love the fact that Rob, like, despite, I think like probably not wanting the bass to get all super crazy melodically or harmonically, um, lets it breathe sometimes a lot of, you know, like bass intro, you know what I mean? Like using it as a dynamic tool as well. So I really love that about, about that track as well. So who's your God now is an interesting song, uh, written, uh, right after Rob OD'd on heroin. He OD'd the day he signed the record deal with Roadrunner. He was so excited that he spent all his money on some heroin ODs and then kind of has a a moment of clarity where he's like, oh, I'm about to have this music career. I just signed this cool record deal. I'm writing this new song. And I guess the song was maybe already about drug abuse, but it became a more personal uh, introspection than just in general criticizing someone else. It was like, hey, what am I doing? Like, I need to... Uh, a lot of the songs have these vague and sometimes deliberate religious themes. Uh, I know he literally is, you know, saying God, but he's not referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's talking about just kind of being enslaved by drugs. But uh, this song is is very cool to me. You know, it's it's an interesting one as far as the dynamics go because it has all the dynamics in one song. It's slower, and then it kind of picks up. It has a little interlude, and then the last minute and a half really punches. I've always loved the clean stuff. Again, like I, I love dynamics. I love when there's um, tones and tonal variety, you know, and especially like, you know, good usage of delay and reverb and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. I just feel like it sets the um, an ambiance. I like to have an, an ambiance built. And so like when the heavy part's heavy, it's extra heavy because, you know, you had this really kind of cool moody sort of a, a an intro to things, you know? I mean, I think that's kind of like actually one of the, I would say like more identifiable um, structural components of new metal or the, the softer singing verse and then like screaming for the chorus or heavy chorus, you know? Um, but I like this one because it was like a little bit of a, a break from that even type of structure. You know what I mean? That it's like, uh, it's not cookie cutter like that, you know? It's almost even more of like a jam session, this song, right? Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, really, a lot more freeform. So then they kind of play with the industrial aspects a little bit more with realize, realize, realize. Yes. Uh, you know, just lots of samples and things like that over a, a short little instrumental. Because, uh, you know, this is the penultimate song. We're getting into to block. We're kind of setting up for the big finale. And again, I think that's cool, too. You're building anticipation with this borderline intro interlude. But it's still a, a cool, dynamic piece of music. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think I remember even... Uh... I remember talking to Rob about that at one point, talking about this track, and like uh, it, little pieces of it resonated with me. It's weird how little pieces of music can get stuck in your head, even you know, tiny little blocks of music can um, can can become earworms. You know, um, I remember even just the, the little lines. You know, like America, I feel like you sound so rad. You know, <laughs> um, just. The, the, the whole, um, even the little musical elements to it, you know? Um, I just really liked, like, the, the collage aspect of, like, you know, the sort of 
telephone EQ or radio EQ, you know, little snippets and, um, you know, kind of saying a message without having to, to write lyrics of your own. Um, I really like that. I like the feel of it. Um, and uh, I was, you know, sort of like eternally uh, honored to have had a part of, of um, on uh, Bloodstone and Diamonds. Um, there was, um, there's a track called Imaginal Cells. And so on, um, the, the Mayhem Festival tour, Rob and I, you know, broke down quite a bit and, uh, I, we exchanged, uh, some books and I, I, I turned them on to this guy named Bruce Lipton and this guy, Bruce Lipton has a, a book with another guy named Steve Behrman and the book is called, um, Spontaneous Evolution, Our, Our Positive Future and How to Get There from Here. And uh, I gave it to him in an, in an audio book, and uh, he liked it so much that he he uh, ended up using it as lyrical inspiration for quite a few songs on Bloodstone and Diamonds. And um, he, I, you know, I didn't know he was going to obviously do that or anything. I didn't have anything to, you know, it just kind of came out afterwards. And he's like, yo, man, this that book was really fucking rad for me. And, um, but he ended up emailing Bruce Lipton, the author, and asking him if it was okay to use snippets from the audiobook uh, on the record. And he ended up creating, you know, the song Imaginal Cells, which to me was like a, a, a strong callback to realize, realize, realize. And um, so that was always, that's, that's always going to have a really special place in my heart, you know what I mean? Because like, it's rare to A, get to meet somebody that was so influential to you and, you know, an iconic record like Burn My Eyes and then, you know, uh, getting to meet this person and, and become friends with them. And then in some small way, you know, you know, give something to them that inspires something. That's like, it was like a big circular thing for my life that I was like, Oh shit. So when I, so now when I listen to realize, 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 um, it's, it's, it's an even stronger connection. Cause I know that like that, you know, energy came back around in some, in some way. Um, so I don't know. I always kind of dig it. I don't know. And even back then though, too, it was one of my favorite things to listen to on the record, even though it wasn't you know, not a traditional song. You know what I mean? Yeah. I definitely don't like listening to block without listening to this into it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, that's a really cool story that you, like you said, that you got to be into this album when you're younger, as yep. you get older, you meet the, the guy who made it and kind of be, have a friendly relationship with him and then directly influence him i mean you know you didn't write a riff or whatever but you gave him something that he got to be inspired by i mean the that circle of life and and music is is too cool those it's funny too when you like you were saying like two things need to to be played into each other like if you start a song without hearing like the sort of iconic intro piece before it even if it's just this long you know kind of instrumental industrial kind of a thing that it's just not quite the same you know but then that's what's cool about block is that it comes out of that and again getting given love to the bass Block also has the most interesting drum fills on the whole album, I feel like. Yes. Block originally called Fuck It All, but those jerks at the record label didn't want profanity all over their CD cases. Can you believe that? So yeah, this, is a, this closes out the album Strong Closer, and I love when an album has a strong closer because you get to walk away happy. You know, it, uh, Not to keep referring to Chaos AD, but I do think there's a lot of parallels between these two albums that sure. Chaos AD has some really amazing songs on it, some of the best songs in the world, but right. it doesn't really end very strongly to me. I mean, the last song is is fine, but it's not 
one of the better songs, whereas Block is like an iconic, you know, important song that you would want to see them play live to this day. Is Burn My Eyes a new metal album? Yeah, I think you could argue it both ways. I think you could argue that it's not. Um, I think that it's 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 got enough of its own. Um, it's got enough traditional metal characteristics and stylings to it that you could argue that it's not a new metal record. But uh, if you look at the climate at the time, what was around, you know, who they toured with, having some of those like we talked about those those early '90s rap type type of uh, influence, even in the, like the specific rhythm rhythms and stuff, um, the general vibe of it overall, I think you could argue that it was. I mean, it, it certainly inspired a lot of new metal. When I think of new metal, I don't necessarily think of Burn My Eyes. I'll say that. That's definitely a, a solid answer. And I don't disagree that when I think of new metal, I don't think of Burn My Eyes. But when I think of Burn My Eyes, I do think of it as a new metal. Right? Not strictly. Like you said, it has its hands and other things. Right. And it's, it's enough traditionally metal an album that people still aren't ashamed to like it but uh yeah, exactly like like burning red i think is an, it, you could definitely say is a new metal record right i mean it's straight up you know it, it doesn't have a lot of these metal characteristics that burn my eyes has and almost deliberately probably at the time i'm sure they were like let's make something that's more new you know, pop song structure yeah i mean i think I'll, I'll always look back at you know this record will always have a uh, a strong place in my heart um not just because it's a uh, a great record, you know, and I think it's a really incredibly strong, uh, iconic metal release. But I think you know, growing up with something, you know, something when you find it when you get into this style of music, or when you when you come into um, uh, something new for you at that young of an age, you know, it's just it's just always gonna have a a, a special impact that it'll be very difficult for anything else to. You know, like we were talking about, like what, you know, if you could go back in your, in your um, teenage years and like introduce some of the records that you have later come to love, uh, I think they would have even stronger impact just because of it's, you know, part of developing, I don't know, I guess your, your, your worldview is, is partially developed by that. And you're, you know, pretty strongly influenced by the lyrical concepts and, um, the stylings and all that kind of shit. So burn my eyes for me, you know, always going to be a, a major <clears throat> important iconic. Record. Job for a cowboy may or may not be in the studio currently, but definitely stay tuned till the end of the episode to hear about nuclear power trio. Another project Nick is involved in. You want to get involved? Great. Go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. Go to Spotify and check out the Meet Meet Pod Picks playlist for hot tracks from all the episodes. Or go to at Meet Meet Pod on Instagram to see cool pictures and tell me that you love me. But next week, it's the end of the world. Donald Tardy from the band Obituary joins me to talk about their 1994 album, World Demise, and it's gonna be devastating. But until then, my name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meet, and yes... That's the best that I could come up with. Bye! Meep, meep. Uh, a clear and present rager. Nuclear Power Trio, a clear and present rager. Not like the movie, a clear and present danger. It's a rager. Is it a major rager? 
it is a major reason. Yeah, big party. That's the whole thing. They're starting this band for world peace, putting aside the politics. You know, you can't. Politics is so divisive. You can't. You can't. You know, it's like we talked about in, the, in this earlier. You cannot get every. There's no way to be able to get everybody together with politics. The way to do that is with music. That's how you get everybody together. So I think they uh, they kind of realize their collective um, prowess uh, for being. Uh, world leaders would be more effectively um, uh, uh, tuned uh, towards achieving world peace by, by doing music instead of instead of politics. So looking forward to it. Looking forward to the release. They've worked really hard on it. And when does it come out and what record label is it on? That's on Metal Blade Records and that'll be October 30th. That will be the last Friday before the election. Fortuitous. The last album that will ever be released by any band. <laughs> Could be, man. It could be. 